1 Kings 12, 25 through 33. Let's hear God's word together. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he made. And he went up to the altar that he made in Bethel on the 14th day, Fifteenth uh, day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to, altar, to the altar to make offerings. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that to know you is to have eternal life. Father, not simply knowing about you, but to know with, one, with the eyes of one's heart the truth about your love, that you are our Father, our Creator, our Redeemer, Lord. Uh, that, that is life. And we pray, Lord, that you would deepen our knowledge of you this morning. We pray that our hearts' confidence in you would grow as we listen to your word together. We pray that our love for you would deepen. We pray that we would see more fully the truth about who you are. Lord, we ask your blessing on the proclamation of your word this morning. We pray that you would use it to accomplish all of your good purpose in our midst. Father, you know the needs of every single person here, and we pray that your word would minister to those needs, uh, bringing your truth to bear on them. So, Father, glorify your name, we ask. Amen. A.W. Tozer once wrote, We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Tozer underscores the fact that your conception of God, how you think about God, not just the things about you, that you say about God, but the things that you believe really at the core of your being are true about God. Uh, that knowledge of God shapes the whole trajectory of your life, your priorities, your goals, how you speak, how you uh, deal with suffering. All of these things are shaped by your conception of God. What is he like? What are his works life, uh, like? And so it's essential for us as Christians to think biblically and rightly about God if we are going to live faithfully and obediently. And this passage helps us to do that uh, by showing us how to think wrongly about him. In other words, it's by way of contrast that we can learn how to think rightly about God um, when we look at Jeroboam's sin 
and the institutional, institutionalization of idolatry in Israel. And that's, that's where we're going. A bit of context here, though. Uh, you may recall that Israel's illustrious King Solomon, known for his wisdom, also built the temple, uh, in later stages of his reign turned towards idolatry. And so God judged him by saying that he's going to tear the kingdom away from his son, uh, Rehoboam. Ten northern tribes will, go, will be given to Jeroboam, another king, and his son, Rehoboam, will be left only with the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin. And we saw last week how that word of judgment was realized through Rehoboam's foolish decision to be a heavy-handed tyrant instead of a servant leader. So now Jeroboam is king over the ten northern tribes. This is the context for our passage. And as we approach it, we're going to note three things this morning. Number one, disobedience starts with unbelief. Disobedience disobedience starts with unbelief. Number two, a bad way to arrive at your theology. A bad way to arrive at your theology. And three, we will explore the distinction between man-made religion versus true religion or the true knowledge of God. So disobedience begins with unbelief. Uh, What does Jeroboam do when he becomes king? Well, he fortifies two strategically significant cities, uh, Shechem and uh, Penuel. And he's, uh, this is necessary. These, uh, these cities overlook uh, you know, cru- crucial roads in, in the kingdom. And so this is a matter of kingly prudence. It's consolidating power, fortifying cities. Nothing wrong with that. But then Jeroboam gets this dark thought, this dark realization. Keep in mind, he's just become king. He's thinking in terms of consolidating power. And he realizes that his people, his subjects, will stream from the northern kingdom into Judah to worship the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Year by year, they're going to go into the territory of a hostile king, a different king, Rehoboam, and they're going to worship the Lord there. Now this is, in terms of political calculation, this is problematic. Because with every trip to Jerusalem, uh, Rehoboam's prestige as king is reinforced. The royal city of Jerusalem is also the city that God identifies with. It's also where the temple is. Every fresh trip to Jerusalem is a reminder that there's a, there's a connection between David's descendant on the throne in Jerusalem and the Lord. And what's more, Rehoboam, the king of Judah, enjoys uh, the weight of tradition and precedence. He's not the first in the royal line. He's the third. David was a national hero, his grandfather. Solomon, his father, was known for his wisdom, built a temple. There's a certain prestige that he has, the prestige of precedent. And so... Jeroboam looks at all this and says, if they keep going and worshiping the Lord in Jerusalem, they're going to kill me and revert back to Rehoboam. This is cold political calculation. And if we look at it simply from a human standpoint, perhaps there's some weight to this. If I don't put a stop to this, I'm going to lose my kingdom and authority. But 
Jeroboam has received a word from the Lord in chapter 11 that should allay all of his fears. What has the Lord told uh, Rehoboam? Sorry, Jeroboam. 1 Kings 11, 37 through 38. This is what God says to him before he becomes king. I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. This is an amazing promise. I'm going to make you king. And if you trust me and walk in my ways, I will establish your kingship. I'll give you a dynasty. There's going to be a descendant after you. It's going to be on the throne. Trust me. Jeroboam, trust me. I will make you king, and I will strengthen you. So at this moment, right at the beginning of his kingship, Jeroboam is caught in a tension between what God has told him in his word. I will make you a king, and I will strengthen you. Follow me. And then the political reality that's, that's in front of him. And the tension that he's confronted with is, which one will he ultimately put his trust in? Is he going to look to the Lord for deliverance? Or is he going to look to his political calculations for deliverance? Is he going to trust the word of God? Or is he going to trust the circumstances that appear to contradict it? And that tension, in so many ways, defines the Christian life, doesn't it? Will I walk by faith in the invisible promises of God that I can't see with my senses, but God tells me this is the way? Or will I allow circumstances that appear to contradict the word to drown out the word? And will I respond in unbelief? That's the tension he's experiencing. And ultimately, Jeroboam lacks trust in God. And the consequences are disastrous for himself and for Israel. We don't know, does he disbelieve in God's reliability? Does he think the Lord is fickle and won't keep his promise? Or the Lord is too weak and he won't keep his promise? We don't know exactly what unbelief uh, is driving him, but he disbelieves the promise of God. And the result is the institutionalization of idolatry. A great sin is committed as a result of his unbelief. So what we need to learn from Jeroboam is this. Uh, Unbelief is not simply sinful in itself. But unbelief, a lack of confidence in the Lord and in his word, leads, opens the door to all kinds of other sins. Another way to say it is small thoughts of God lead to big sins. Small thoughts of God uh, lead to big sins. Unbelief, I want to make clear, is in itself sinful. We dishonor the Lord when we don't trust him. We say to him, you're not reliable, you're not powerful enough. But again, that unbelief opens the door to other sins. Uh, we, we should think of faith as the eye of the soul. Faith is the eye of the soul. Faith enables us to see things about God who is invisible, right? Uh, by faith, we see that he is good and glorious, majestic. And when we see God by faith for who he is, great and good, righteous, wise, when by faith we see that to be the truth about God, we respond with trust in him delight in him, and obedience in him. Unbelief, on the other hand, is like spiritual blindness. We don't see God for who he is, so we don't trust him, and the result is that we rebel. Unbelief leads to disobedience. It's not just disobedience in itself. It leads to disobedience. Uh, For instance, God calls us to forgive others. 
We are called to obey him by forgiving others. But as long as we don't believe that we have been deeply forgiven by God of a debt we could have never paid at the high cost of Jesus' life, if we don't believe that, then we're going to find it very difficult to forgive other people. We're going to be petty, vindictive, and thin-skinned because of our unbelief. Unbelief makes it difficult to forgive others. Unbelief makes it difficult to love the unlovely. God calls us to love people that are hard to love. We know this, yes? And if, if you don't see that God loved you when you were unlovely, when you had nothing to offer, Jesus Christ laid down his life for you, when you were an enemy of God, the Son of God died for you, if you don't see that, if you don't believe that, and if that doesn't melt your heart, then when you're confronted with a difficult person, what are you going to do? Hold them at arm's length. Gradually step away slowly. Move them to the periphery of life. Uh, don't let them get in the way. How do you love them? By believing that you yourself were once unlovely and dead in your sins and trespasses, and God loved you. When you believe that, it melts your heart and makes you able to love other people. Jesus says, don't be anxious. How could you not be anxious? By believing that God is in control and walking with you through the storms of life and he will bring you safely through. But if you don't believe that, you're going to be crippled by fear and anxiety. Unbelief leads to disobedience. And one of the great questions we should ask, incidentally, uh, when we fall into sin, every once in a while, pose this question to yourself. What am I not believing about God or his word that's leading me to fall into this sin? When I commit this sin, what is it that I am not believing about God? But then the opposite side of the coin is also true. When we see God for who he is, great and good, when we trust in him, that faith leads to obedience. You see, to obey God, it's not enough simply to try to obey harder. Although you should certainly try to obey harder. There's nothing wrong with that. But real obedience comes from knowing the Lord seeing him for who he is. And when by faith I, I see him, I, I find myself increasingly joyful, increasingly faithful, increasingly wanting to walk in fellowship with him. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 describes those who have uh, faith in God, who place their trust in God. See, I'm not used to doing this. Something in my hand. Here we go. Hebrews 11.33 speaks of those who through faith a clear grasp of who God is, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. How do they do this? By seeing God for who he is. They live courageously for him. Uh, it's interesting in this respect to note, uh, I was reading through uh, Tim Keller's book on prayer, which is excellent, excellent, excellent. And um, he makes this observation about Paul's prayers. The Apostle Paul. Uh, he notes, it is remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in their circumstance. In them, his prayers, he reveals what he asked most frequently for his friends, what he believed was the most important thing God could give them. What is that? To know him better. It blew me away. It's true. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to ask for changes in circumstances. The Lord's Prayer teaches that we can and should ask for that. But Paul's characteristic prayer 
for God's people, for his friends, is not that they would experience respite from hardship, but his main prayer is that they would know God. Or, to use the language of Ephesians 1.18, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened to know God in all of his greatness and goodness and power. And if they can get a sense upon the heart of God, then that will change everything. When, I, when, when we speak about the knowledge of God in this context, it's not just a bunch of facts about God. It's a kind of deep inner awareness of God, a sense of the reality of God that changes the trajectory of life, leads to obedience. If you want to grow in obedience, you need the eyes of your heart to be enlightened. You need to grow in your faith, which is another way of saying it, to see God more clearly for who he is. How do we do that? Well, one way, one crucial way, one central way, is to have a serious life of prayer, where we are in the presence of God, where we praise him, confess sin, uh, meditate on him, and, uh, and live in fellowship with him. Like Paul, we should ask, Lord, open the eyes of my heart to see that you're my father. I know you're my father because your word says you're my father, but if I believed that you are my father, I would have a lot more peace. Help me not just to understand it notionally, but existentially. Increasing faith in God, seeing him for who he is, having an increasingly large view of the Lord leads to obedience. Second thing then that I want you to notice, that I want to look at, is that there's a, this, is, this passage gives us a, a, an indication of a bad way to do theology. Jeroboam is a bad theologian. This is not how we should determine what is true and what is not true about God and his will for us. Well, what does he do? Okay, so we saw the political problem that confronts Jeroboam. From his standpoint, if his people keep worshiping in Jerusalem, he's going to lose them. And what he needs is to consolidate power. So he gets advice. He takes counsel. And it's interesting to notice that in the previous section, uh, Rehoboam also gets counsel. He gets good counsel, bad counsel, counsel goes to the bad counsel. Uh, Jeroboam also gets counsel here. Uh, I guess we can say it's not enough to just get advice from people. Not a bad idea, get advice. But also get advice from good people. To get good advice, you need to get advice from good people. Well, he goes to bad people. Uh, I don't know who his counselors were, but they say, Here, here's what we do. We build two calves of gold. If you know scripture at all, you, you, you know, your ears should perk up. There's a precedent for this. When Israel was liberated by the Lord from captivity in Egypt, brought to Sinai, and Moses went to be with the Lord on the mountain, the people said to, Mo, to Aaron, Moses' brother, who didn't go with Moses, they said, uh, make us some gods that we can follow. And Aaron follows the people. In fact, it's interesting that the, the wording that's used here is essentially identical to the wording in Exodus. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Same terminology in that context. Give us a god, uh, say the people to Aaron. Uh, and of course, he creates the golden calf, and that proves to be uh, a great source of misery for Israel. Same kind of situation here. Uh, now, wh why is it that they... Revert to golden calves as a way of worshiping the Lord? Well, probably because there's an element of historical precedent. It's been done before. Never mind that it led to God's judgment or the threat of judgment. It's been done before, and that gives it a certain weight. Uh, so why don't we go ahead and build golden calves? 
Now, it's important to be clear, it's not that these calves are necessarily alternatives, like alternative objects of worship to the Lord. It's that the Lord is going to be worshipped through the worship of these calves, violating the second commandment, which prohibits the use of images in the worship of the Lord. So that's their plan. This has been done historically. There's a tradition, which I guess should also make us cautious about. Just because it's old, it's not necessarily good, right? Um, Modern bias might run in the opposite direction because it's new, it's good. But you can have the traditionalist bias because it's old, it's good. Okay, so they erect these golden calves. Uh, There's a new priesthood that's established, not from the Levites, as was sanctioned by the Mosaic Law, but random guys from random tribes were established as priests. There's a new location for God's worship. There's a new temple. And, uh, and there are now golden calves. How God is worshipped changes. He institutes a new festival, and I like the wording here, uh, that, that he sort of came up with, that he devised from his own heart. He made it up, right? He's making all of this up. All of these religious innovations are coming from his own heart. Uh, to rival the Feast of Tabernacles, he institutes a feast of his own. So what do we make of all of this? Well, What's driving this religious innovation in the, among the northern tribes? Is it that Jeroboam is convinced that the truth about God justifies this innovation? No. It's not that this is what is true. It's that this is what's useful. What's important to Jeroboam is consolidating power. And so what he does and doesn't do What they accept is true or not true about the Lord is dependent on whether or not it's going to consolidate his power. This is what we might call a pragmatic approach to religion. If it's useful, if it helps me, I accept it. The first question is not, is it true, but is it useful? And in this way, Jeroboam is a man ahead of his time. In this way, Jeroboam is a very modern individual. Because for many people today, The question when it comes to their theology, their understanding of God, is not what is true, what has God said about himself. The question is, what is personally helpful to me? What brings me encouragement, inspiration, and hope? And if it it gives me a kind of inward satisfaction, if it produces relief, then I'll accept those beliefs. We might call this a therapeutic approach to theology. I evaluate what I believe and don't believe about God and his will based on how it makes me feel. Have you heard people begin a sentence this way? I like to think of God as, and fill in the blank. And what standard are they using to determine how they think about God? Well, this helps me. This is encouraging. Uh, that, is, that puts you on the fast track towards idolatry. You are custom-making a god after your own heart and imagination. Your imagination is crafting an idol for you. You're not worshiping the true God who has revealed himself in Scripture, if you think in those terms. You are worshiping a figment of your imagination or lie. That's Jeroboam's error. It's a bad way to arrive at conclusions about God. And yet, before dismissing this too quickly and saying, yeah, I would never do that, Uh, it's helpful to at least pose the question, how might we as God's people be tempted to do exactly this? To reject what God has said about himself and his word 
and customize our own private version of the Lord? How might we be tempted to do that? So let me give you three ways in which I think I've seen this, at least the temptation among God's people. First way we do this is when we selectively receive what Scripture teaches about the character of God. When we emphasize God is Father and He loves us and He accepts us, and we downplay, ignore, de-emphasize the, the truth that God is a God of holy hatred of sin, who judges sin, when we view that as somehow unworthy of God and we de-emphasize it, we, we emphasize the bits that we like, what are we doing? We're creating our own custom, carefully edited, personally satisfying version of Yahweh that resembles the true and living God less and less as we tweak a God according to our preferences. And perhaps a more subtle error still is, are there things that Scripture reveals about God that you feel in your heart are somehow not worthy of God? You wouldn't say it out loud, but there's almost like a part of you that goes, I wish God weren't like that, or I wish that text weren't there. And to the extent that that desire is there, that God would be other than what he has revealed himself to be, we're taking a step towards idolatry. We're saying that, in a sense, this is blasphemy, God can be improved upon if only this character quality were different. There are aspects of God's character that you feel that way about. What we need to say as Christians is that everything about God is utterly praiseworthy. Everything about God is perfect and right and good and should elicit adoration. His holy hatred of sin and his love of sinners are both reasons for which to praise God. We want to say yes and amen to all that scripture says about God. Let me give you another example. Uh, I've seen this where someone will take a general biblical teaching, God is love, general statement that's true and it's in the Bible, and then use it to draw specific unbiblical conclusions. God is love, so he's not going to punish us. God is love, so uh, he's not going to punish sinners forever, for instance. He'll accept everybody. We need to check those, those general statements in Scripture against the particularities of Scripture. Number three, another one that I've seen, um, an indifference towards the knowledge of God and impatient, impatience with the careful study of Scripture and the desire to think carefully about God. The danger here is that if we won't try to think biblically and carefully about God, it's not that we won't have, it's not that we won't have any uh, ideas about God, it's that we'll have the wrong ideas about God. If we don't make an effort to increasingly submit our minds to Scripture, we're going to drift into error. So we need to, even as God's people, we want to say that this is the, the danger of gently moving away from the God who has made himself known in Scripture and creating a customized, carefully edited, personally satisfying version of God can be a temptation even for us. And the solution to that temptation is to submit ourselves to everything that God's Word says, to immerse ourselves in Holy Scripture, to delight in everything that it reveals about God, and to subject our thinking to correction and challenge from Holy Scripture so that our minds are increasingly conformed to the God who is there. The only corrective is to immerse ourselves in the revelation that God has given us about himself. Final thing here, as we contrast 
man-made religion from the true knowledge of God. Look at, so we, we've, we've seen how Jeroboam has taken all of these initiatives to create religious reform in Israel. He's changed the priesthood, the place of worship. There are now golden calves. We've seen all of this. Uh, notice in the last few verses of this section, the repeated phrase, he made. I'm going to read it, but just listen for that. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of, of the high places that he made. He went up to the altar that he made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th uh, month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel. You notice that? Now, that's a common verb, he made, he made. But notice how heavily it's repeated. He made, he made, he made. And notice how the festival is from his own heart. He made it up. What does that teach us about false religion? It teaches us that false religions originate from below. They originate with man and man's initiative. These innovations are not from God. They are the product of human imagination, reasoning, calculation, and so on. Scripture teaches that all human beings, all human beings who live in God's world, have some knowledge of God through the created order. Romans 1, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And this knowledge of God is inescapable and render, renders men inexcusable. Simply to be awake and conscious in God's creation means that you're confronted with God at every corner. But because of man's perverse, rebellious, unbelieving, unrepentant heart, that knowledge that comes to us through creation is consistently distorted and redirected in an idolatrous direction such that men end up worshiping creations of their own mind rather than the true and living God. Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, puts it this way, Just as waters boil up from a vast, full spring... So does an immense crowd of gods flow forth from the human mind. We may not literally worship down before a statuette as our God, but insofar as we are twisting and distorting the truth that God has revealed, we are worshiping not the living God, but an idol. And when you look at all the re religiosity that exists in the world, all the solemn feasts and fest festivals, all the ascetic and rigorous practices, it's sobering to consider that insofar as, as those things are repudiation of God's revelation in Christ, that, is, that religiosity is bu built on human fantasy, folly, and lies. Human religion, false religion, begins with man and tries to work itself up and ultimately creates a God after its own imagination. And that raises the question, how, how then can we know God truly? How can we speak confidently about the living God when that's the tendency among human beings to twist the knowledge of God? Uh, the answer is that whereas false religion moves from man to God and originates with the initiative of man, the true knowledge of God, true religion, begins with God's initiative. We don't go up to God. He comes down to us and speaks to us using human language, which he has given to us in Holy Scripture. God has given to his people his word that they might know him 
truly. In Scripture, there is no admixture of error. Everything it affirms to be true about God and His works is utterly reliable. And when we submit our minds and our hearts to the teaching of Scripture, we are seeing not a figment of human imagination, but by faith we are seeing the one true and living God. And when we speak of Him according to His word, we are making statements that are real and true and right. Now, the climax of God's revealing activity is the coming of the eternal Son of God into the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. God has made himself known through various prophets in history, but the supreme act of divine self-disclosure, the climactic act by, by which God makes himself known to human beings, is the incarnation of the Son of God. The eternal Son becomes a human being like us for our salvation, yes, but also that we might know God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus, in his teaching and in his person, in his very being, is the climactic revelation of God. If we want to know who God is at the core of his being, we look at the son. The son perfectly reflects the father. When we see the Son stooping down to bless the children, we see God blessing children. When we see Jesus Christ eating with sinners, we see God eating with sinners. When we see Jesus touching a leper, making him pure, we see God bringing healing to the sick. And when, at the end of Jesus' life, we see the Son of God in love for sinners laying down his life for us, that we might be washed and reconciled to God. We see that God is a self-giving God. Even though Jesus Christ is eternal God and has an absolute claim over his creation, he sets aside his rights and his glory. He comes into this world and dies the death of a common criminal so that we might be washed of our guilt and sin and disobedience and reconciled to God. You want to know what God is like? That's what God is like. In the incarnation, in the life of Jesus, all the fullness of the glory of God shines. And what we see is that in contrast to false religion, salvation is of the Lord. What does every religion outside of Christianity say? If you want God to accept you on the last day, what? Well, you know, say five prayers, and but make sure you do it each day. Make sure you're... you're uh, generous to the poor and make sure that you live a, a morally wholesome life and try your best and hopefully it works out, right? False religion says the initiative is with you. This is we've seen in this passage. The initiative is with man. But what do we see in Jesus? We see that if anyone is to be reconciled to God Almighty, it's not because of anything that we do. It's because what God has done for us. God has taken the initiative and he has come down to us. And through the work of Jesus, he has taken away every impediment and obstacle to fellowship with him. If we are to enter into a relationship with God, it is not through our striving and effort. It is through faith in the striving and effort of the Son of God. If you want to know God, you see the truth about God shining brightest in Jesus Christ. That means for you today, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus, 
the path to a relationship with God is through the Son. <clears throat> there is no other path to a relationship with God other than through Jesus. So the invitation for you this morning is trust in Jesus as your Savior <clears throat> and submit to him as your King. And if you are, praise God, if you are this morning trusting in Jesus as your Savior, the invitation for you is to continue to behold the glory of God that shines in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. That's how we grow. Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians. As we behold his glory, what? We're transformed from one degree of glory to another. How are we changed? By seeing the, the beauty and greatness of our Savior more and more. Uh, many years ago, I had the privilege of talking about uh, the imputed righteousness of Jesus preached on that. In other words, Jesus doesn't just die to say, forgive us of our sins, but his perfect obedience is actually counted to us when we stand before God. We are clothed in his perfect obedience. And we taught on this. And uh, after uh, the service, I spoke to a woman, been a Christian many years, uh, clearly had been moved about this truth and believe, if I'm not mistaken, was even teary-eyed, uh, shaken up, and she said, can that really be true? Is that right? I've been Christian for many years. But what was happening? She was seeing that there was more to the grace and goodness of God than she had ever understood. And as by faith she saw the Savior more clearly, it blew her away. She was astonished by the goodness of God and the mercy of God. That's how we change. By faith, we see more and more of how wonderful a Savior Jesus is. And as we see him more and more clearly, our hearts are softened, they're enlarged, and we walk in increasing obedience. So as we walk away from this passage this morning, the call to us is to conform our thoughts, not to what we want God to be like, but to what he has revealed himself to be. And to behold his glory as it is revealed in scripture in Jesus Christ, that we might more and more be transformed, um, that we might walk in obedience. This takes intentionality. This takes thoughtfulness. How are you going to carve out time to spend time in the presence of God in prayer, meditating on his word? But that's the goal. Seeing Jesus for who he is, that we might increasingly reflect his character. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess that we have not even begun to grasp the depth of your goodness, your wisdom, your mercies, Lord. We have not begun to see you for who you are. And we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased through your spirit to open our hearts, that we might more clearly see you and might rest in you and not in our circumstances. Lord, apply your word to us, we pray and transform us, we pray. Amen.